Welcome to the Old Man and the Three podcast with JJ Reddick and Tommy Alter, presented by Cash App. This is episode four, Jason Tatum. Tommy, I'm really excited about today's guest. Jason is one of the best up and coming young players in the NBA, and obviously a Duke guy. Duke Mafia. The Duke Mafia is everywhere. We get into it for better, for worse, mostly for worse. Yeah. Please stay past the first five minutes. <laughs> What's going on, man? Nothing, man. So I, you know, we didn't win again last night. Most of the guys that had played heavy minutes all sat out with the exception of Lonzo and Josh Hart. And probably more of the same, I would guess. Tomorrow, the NBA has instructed us that we have to uh, leave the bubble immediately after the game. Um, so the team's going to head back to New Orleans. I'm actually going to head up to New York on, uh, on Friday morning and just go directly back to see the family. I can say, I guess if there is a silver lining to not making the playoffs is that Saturday I will be at the beach with my kids. (laughs) Yeah. That is the silver lining. (laughs) It's really weird. It's just a really weird way for the season to end. You know, there's no like clean out your locker. There's no post exit interviews with media or anything like that. It's like, all right, see you guys later. Please leave immediately. Yeah. (laughs) Don't take anything from the rooms. Uh, Exactly. So one of the things we should talk about is we're going to have some correspondence. I know of at least one guy who's committed to doing it. Uh, So we're going to have some correspondence from inside the bubble as the playoffs are going on. Some people will be talking to uh, check-ins here and there as we map out upcoming episodes. We'll obviously have our full-length conversations, but we'll be uh, checking in here and there with a couple correspondents, and we'll announce those over the next uh, week or so. So you guys are still getting the perspective of life in the bubble. There's obviously going to be teams changing or, or leaving and then teams changing hotels families will be incoming after the first round of the playoffs so there's a lot of stuff that's going to be new over the next few weeks and that's exciting let's do the mailbag question what is this episode's mailbag question so i like this question this is from elaine cologne in gainesville florida elaine writes jj and tommy i'm a huge duke fan uh have been since the early 90s watching leitner hurley hill on tv i never got to see a game at cameron indoor to this day, I would totally camp out for a week in Coach Kville in order to have the chance to catch a Duke home game in person. What is one event, sporting or other, that you would camp out for a week in order to see? Ooh. Good question. That is a great question. Tommy, is there is there a sporting event? a sporting event. You have, have a, a sporting, sporting event? event? What is your sporting event? Mine is very specific. So in 2016, when the Cubs were in the World Series, I'm a huge Cubs fan. And the Cubs did not win a World Series since 1908. I would have camped out for any amount of time in order to go to Game 7. I like that. That was a moment where it was like, okay, if you have to camp out for three or four days and you get tickets to go to this Game 7, I would have done that. Let's peel back a Tommy layer here. Let's do it. Because people don't really know a lot about you. Let's do it. We have to do a full... We'll do a full show on this eventually. We'll peel back an onion layer right now. Yeah. So I thought you grew up in New Jersey. Why are you such I a... I did. So why are you such a Chicago fan? I'm a Chicago sports fan because my family is all from Chicago. And my dad was a huge Cubs fan. Is a huge Cubs fan. 
And so I always grew up going to Cubs games and I was there all summer. I was there my summers, most summers when I was like in middle and high school. And so I grew up Bulls, Bears, Cubs, everything. We get into some of the Bulls stuff in one of the future episodes with one of our really great guests. But that always stuck with me and all my friends were New Yorkers. So everybody was a Yankees fan and everyone was a Giants fan and everything like that. And it was kind of nice to be different. So it stood out. The Cubs and Bears, I guess, are the only teams. Like, I'm not a Bulls fan at all. I like the Cubs. For me, this is a... So for a sporting event to camp out for a week, I kind of feel like I probably would just make a couple phone calls so I wouldn't have to camp out for a week. (laughs) (laughs) Douche comment. You have to answer the... Maybe we'll edit that. Pretend you're not a professional (laughs) athlete. Maybe we'll edit that part out. (laughs) No, we're leaving it in. It was a joke. You know it was a joke. I wasn't being serious. I wasn't being We're serious. Leaving it. I wasn't being serious. All right. Um, come on, man. It's early in the morning. Uh, all right. I would say the Masters, and it would be Sunday Masters. Yeah, um, that's a good one. Masters are great. Masters are always in that sort of second, first or second week in April. The regular season's still going on in the NBA. There's a few sporting events and things that I have not been able to do as a professional athlete. And I would say number one would be the Masters. Uh, Number two would be the Kentucky Derby. Number three would be a ski trip. I'm really looking forward to retirement and going on a ski trip. I you can't go on a ski trip now, but that's a... That's a liability. Yeah, it's a liability thing. Even if I went for All-Star break, I can't do it. The risk of you know any any sort of injury. I remember Vladimir Radmanovich when he played for the Lakers went snowboarding over All Star break and sprained his knee and got a five hundred thousand dollar fine. So that's not worth it to me. Snowboarding as a professional basketball player is indefensible. I mean, snowboarding you part of snowboarding is you're on the ground eighty percent of the time as is. So the, your risk of injury is astronomical. Skiing, at least, I mean, I understand why you can't do it. But I feel like you would be a smooth skier. Like barring some sort of like some fluke thing, you could probably stay up the whole time. One of my, I actually got to do one of my like top, let's call it 10 to 20 sporting events last summer. I went to the round of 16 of the US Open and we had gotten the tickets ahead of time. So we didn't really know who was going to be at that you know, Arthur Ashe Stadium, the, the main stadium that afternoon. And it ended up being Roger Federer and the second match was Serena Williams. So to see two goats back to back. That's pretty good. Two of the greatest athletes ever back to back was pretty awesome. But to answer the question, Masters for sure. What about a concert? A concert. Um, like if someone said this is going to be Bruce Springsteen's last concert, I would yeah. camp out for that for sure. For sure. Before we get to Jason Tatum, real quick, we've got an amazing episode coming out on Monday with NBA legend, future Hall of Famer, three-time NBA champion, Dwayne Wade. Tommy, this episode with D. Wade that comes out on Monday is one of the best we've done. We're really excited about it. Yes. Uh, he was awesome. Mind-blowing. Mind- we're not, we're not overhyping. I think all the episodes we've done so far in the new show have been really good. Uh, and good in different ways, but D Wade, uh, he brings it, and he's got a wealth of knowledge on a lot of different topics. And 
I think you guys are really going to like it. All right, let's get to our conversation with Jason Tatum. This is a really fun one, as always. Jason is open and candid. We talk a bunch of stuff, including uh, Jason busting my ass in the uh, 76ers Celtics series a couple years ago in the playoffs. Let's get to Jason Tatum. All right, let's welcome in this week's guest to the old man in the three, a Duke basketball alum, Jason Tatum. Jason, thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate you having me. We should get the Duke stuff out of the way, I feel like. <laughs> we we are part of the brotherhood, as it's known now. I think the social media people at running the Duke basketball program came up with this moniker a few years ago. We actually have the most players here in the bubble. I think there's 17 Duke players here. Uh, yeah, what is like it? 10 of them. Yeah, we got we got a third a third of them basically. The yeah. other the other day against Memphis, it was we had five players, they had three players. We had basically half the half the Duke guys on two teams. Um what does it mean to you to be part of the Duke basketball fraternity? It really is like a brotherhood. I feel like they came up with that name maybe a few years before I got there. And just the connection that we all have whether you're 15, 10, 20 years apart or older from one another. We've all seen each other play and I feel like rooted for one another. And, you know, anytime you see somebody or interact with somebody that went to Duke or or played at Duke, there's always some type of bond and some type of connection. And I think that's really special. And I tell people all the time, I think the most important part is we all play for the same coach. And that's you. a lot of other programs can't say that we all all of us play for Coach K, so um, I think that's what kind of separates us. Did people give you shit about going to Duke? Because people hated JJ at Duke, and they still kind of do because of it. I, I remember watching JJ at the time, growing up in St. Louis. I didn't. Duke was like something that that didn't seem attainable. Like it didn't for me. It was like I thought it was amazing. They had the best players and a great coach, but I never was like like Duke never going to like want me to come there. So it was just kind of something like I know about it, but it's, it's just over there. I never really was like, you know, that's where I'm going to be. I, n- I never grew up wanting to go to Duke, not because I didn't like him, just because I never thought Coach K would like come to my house and be like, we want you to come to Duke. When did you realize you were going to Duke? At what point were you like, oh, this is the school for me? Oh, when I took my official visit, it was in 2015. I was a junior and, uh, I only took one official visit when I was in high school. They played Syracuse, so I was there for like a weekend. So I got to go to practice, go to a game, spend time with the team, and just the the environment, you know, just to see how well the players interacted with one another and how they all kind of would like run through a wall for Coach K. And, you know, they had so much love for him. Um, I was sold immediately. I wanted, I wanted to commit when I was there and I remember my dad and mom was like, we only took one visit, only a junior high school, you know, like give the other schools a chance. I'm like, I mean, I, I know where I want to go. So I, for, I only took one official visit and it was to Duke. So I, I knew as soon as I stepped on campus for that visit when I was 16, that this was where I wanted to be. I think I, at the time when I committed I was the youngest commitment ever. I had just turned 16. It was like fall of my junior year. There's been other earlier commitments since I did that, and it's well-documented that I grew up a a huge fan. Did Coach K get you in the room 
on your official visit? Did he get that that one-on-one time in his office? Because that, yeah. to me, that when I was visiting, I was interested in other schools. Duke was my dream school, but once he got me in the room and sort of mapped out his plans for recruiting, what the team was going to look like while I was there, that was all I needed to hear. I was sold at that point. I actually canceled my visit the following weekend to the University of Florida because once I once I was in the room, it was over. Yeah, I definitely had the same experience sitting one-on-one with him in his office and just hearing the, the plans that he had for me and you know what my my one year at Duke was going to look like and just hearing it from from his mouth was like kind of the the encouragement the validation um especially at 16 I was I remember my hands were sweating I was speechless just listening to him talk and just it was amazing to 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 hear how highly he thought of me at only 16 and like you said after after that weekend that was all I needed you know I was I was ready to to sign the line right there Tommy, how long do you think, you're not a Duke hater, but how long do you think that Jason and I could sit here and talk about Duke before listeners started tuning off? <laughs> I think they've started tuning out. You uh, think we've, we've reached our limit? Three seconds after, seconds after you mentioned it. The funny thing is, I'm not a Duke hater, but I understand people hate sustained greatness, no matter what it is. No matter, sports, music, they they hate the favorite. They hate the uh, overdog, and so you guys bring this on yourself. The difference is, I think the difference between you two is, Jason. You and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you were in college, you just bawled, but you were not somebody that had like a visceral rival. Like you didn't have a school, another school that hated you or anything like that. The Maryland kids, especially, hated JJ. And it was crank calls. It was, it was, oh, I mean, he can tell you more than I can, but he had a nemesis when he was 19 years old. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wasn't there long enough to, to get any enemies. I was there there when my freshman year was Grayson's junior year. So I definitely was a part of, on a smaller scale, something like that, just being teammates with him and what he had to deal with and what we all had to deal with, you know, just being on the team. I always say, though, I, Obviously, UNC is our, our biggest rival. I think you would agree with me, Jason, that there's a huge amount of respect mm-hmm. amongst the schools, amongst, amongst the programs. Like For me, I respect all the UNC guys. I respect that rivalry. It was such an honor to be part of it. And I always say this. I said I have no, like zero ill will towards any of the fans. Mm-hmm. We were all in college. People were drinking. People thought it was funny. My only thing is fuck Maryland fans. That's my only thing. <laughs> they took it too far. Right. <laughs> Jason, I want to talk about, we both want to talk about St. Louis for a second. When you were growing up, you know, basketball wise, when do you feel like you kind of started to figure it out? That's a good question. I was always better than everybody in my age group in St. Louis. I was always taller. And I remember my first time going to AAU Nationals was in New Orleans in fourth or fifth grade. So I was like nine or 10. And in my mind at the time, I thought I was the best 10 year old in the world. Like I just thought I was so much better than everybody else. And that was the first time it hit me. I went to Nationals and I might've been half as good as everybody else. Like it was, it was such an eye opener for me and it, and it made me realize, like, damn, I got 
so far to go to be as good as those guys or to reach my ultimate goal. And I think that was that was a big lesson for me that week at, at fourth grade match. Even though we were super young, it just I, I vividly remember it being like, damn, I'm nowhere near as good as as I thought I was or even close. And I remember ever since then, I just knew that, you know, there's always some some other kid in another state in another city who's as good as me or, or is working harder than I am. And that always motivated me that maybe I didn't know him personally, but I just knew that there's a lot of other competition out there. There's just, the world is just so much bigger than St. Louis. And at the time in fourth grade, I didn't I didn't know about. When, when did you start working with a designated basketball trainer? Like so many guys have now, I I feel like you were one of the first guys to do that at a very young age, and now it's it's fairly commonplace. But you were one of the first guys to do that. Yeah, uh, my so my dad played. He played college basketball at St. Louis University, and he played overseas for a little bit. And he was a high school coach. So I I used to work out with my dad all the time, and I remember Drew Hanlon. I started working out with him. He he was training David Lee and Brad Bill at the time. He's another St. Louis guy. I started training with, with Drew Hanlon when I was in eighth grade. And I think that's when I kind of took a, a bigger leap in, in my basketball development. And I've been, I've, I still work out with, with Drew to this day, but um, he's been very instrumental in, in just helping me uh, continue to get better each and every year. Did your start with Drew coincide with your growth spurt? When did you hit your growth spurt? Yeah, I was I was always kind of tall. I think when I was in eighth grade, I was like six, six one, six two. Going into high school, my freshman year, I was like six three, maybe. And then over the summer, by the time I was a sophomore, I was like six seven. So I think eighth grade to sophomore year, I kind of grew about five five six inches. You know, once I got to high school, when I after my freshman year of high school, that's when it hit me that like. Damn, I like I could make it in the NBA is, a, is is more and more a reality that you know obviously when I, you're in high school you're 14 you're playing on varsity you're starting you know you're holding your own and, and figuring trying to figure things out after my freshman year of high school that's when I was like all right like I, I still got a long way to go but it's becoming more and more a reality that you know I could play in the NBA. Were you talking with Brad like this whole time? Like, how did your sort of relationship progress? Because he he babysat you, is that right? No, he didn't. He didn't babysit me. But or is that a rumor? His uh, so his mom was my mom's high school volleyball coach. So Brad grew up two minutes away from from where I lived, and uh, I've known Brad my whole life and his family. So when I was in seventh grade, he was in he was a senior, and the the high school and the middle school was connected. So I went to we all went to the same high school, and so I went I went to school with him for a year, and he would take me home every day after school because I would wait around. I would work out with him sometimes or I would watch him work out and rebound for him. And then after practice, he would always take me on because we live two minutes away from each other. I also played with uh, another St. Louis guy who you know very well, Larry Hughes. Uh, we were teammates for basically a season in Orlando. Uh, and actually, I've, I've talked to him several times over the last couple of years on, uh, on some business stuff he's doing. And then David Lee, of course, is another St. Louis guy. St. Louis low-key has a really good basketball scene. Yeah, we don't get enough credit. You know, we got Larry Hughes, David Lee, um, JoJo White, who played for the Celtics, myself, Brad Bill, Ben McLemore, Patrick McCall. 
Um, we fly, we kind of fly under the radar, but you know, we we got some guys. I want to ask you about your experience so far in the bubble, and I know that you gave a couple interviews where you talked about just being hesitant to come to the bubble. A number of reasons, obviously, the the social justice unrest and the social justice movement happening. And of course, being away from your son for such an extended period of time. Uh, so what, what has been the, the biggest challenge for you so far in the bubble? Oh, I would, I would easily say just being away from my family. And um, I know a lot of people have wives and, and kids and, you know, family situations at home. But I think that's the toughest part for me because, you know, you go from being around your kid, you know, all the time, and especially during the, the pandemic, I, I was with them every day with, without traveling. And then now having to go, this is the longest I've ever been, you know, without, without seeing him, without spending time with him. And the toughest part for me is he's, he'll be three in December. So he's like two and a half. And, you know, anybody that has kids know that, you know, when they're that young, they, they change so often, you know, their development is week to week, you know, he's getting taller his habits are changing. He's doing different things. He's, he's talking more. And for me, you know, wishing I could, you know, be there and experience all of that, which I normally would have, you know, in the first two years. And, you know, now having to see videos and talk to him over FaceTime and he's not old enough where I can kind of explain like, Hey, daddy's going away for three months and I won't be able to see you. Like he, I can't have that kind of, cause he's not old enough. So you know, if, if he was 14, I think it would be easier. You know, he would under, have a better understanding. But, you know, just him being so young, you know, I think that's the toughest part for me. Did you did you bring bedtime books to the bubble <laughs> to read to him? I read somewhere that you did that. Yeah. His, his, his mom, she sent me a bunch of his toy animals and a bunch of books just to kind of keep things kind of as normal as we can um, through FaceTime. You know, that's kind of our routine at night to read a book and kind of look at his animals before he goes to sleep. So he was very surprised that, you know, when I FaceTime him at night, same book that he had in his hand that I had, he, it was funny uh, just to see his reaction. So just to do that every night um, to kind of keep our, our routine and kind of normalize things to a certain extent has, has made the process a little bit easier. The good thing about his age is he probably won't remember right. you being away for this for this long. My two boys are going to be six and four in two weeks, and the older one seems to be doing pretty well with it. Mm-hmm. The younger one, back in June, before I left to go back to the home market in New Orleans, about two days before I left, I was with him at the park in in Brooklyn, and he said, "Dad, I don't I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to play basketball anymore." I want you to stay home and and play ninja with me and build Legos. So I do feel some sense of of like a burden and anxiety from being away from them just because he, even him at, 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 you know, almost four kind of gets it. In fact, the first three weeks that I was in the bubble, he wouldn't speak to me. If I was like, if we were FaceTiming, he would kick the phone. (laughs) Oh man, that was, that's tough. So yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, the other thing that you've been doing in the bubble is I saw you out on the golf course. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's been some speculation that you may have the best golf swing in the bubble. Obviously, Steph probably is the best golfer in the NBA. When did when did you pick up golf? I didn't pick up golf until 
right around Mother's Day. So what's that? May. So <laughs> wait, May. you never you that's never not, swung not that a, long ago. <laughs> you never been, swung a golf club before. I've been to like Top Golf and stuff, you know, okay. on the occasion. Um, but my, I remember I actually came down with my family to Orlando the month of May, you know, and just because the weather was kind of bad in Boston, so we kind of. We rented a house. We came down here on the golf course, and, you know, we had a pool for Deuce. And my stepdad is – he's a huge golfer. He's been playing golf for, like, 20 years. And he always told me, like, Jay, I got to get you out there one day. And I was like, man, golf is boring. Like, once I get done playing, once I retire, like, I, I pick it up. And I'm one day he was going to the driving range. I was like, I'm going to go with you. Like, I ain't got nothing else to do. One day turning into two days, turning into three days, turning into – Let's play nine holes. Let's play another nine. Then let's play 18. Then I'm like, damn. I'm starting to figure it out, and it's fun. I'm starting to enjoy it. So then once we went back to Boston, I started getting lessons. Like, I would, I would go get lessons four to five times a week for, like, three hours. And I eventually got fitted for my own clubs, and I started ordering all this Nike, uh, I mean, this Jordan golf gear, shoes, shirts, and I'm addicted. I wouldn't say I got the best golf swing in the bubble because I've seen, seen Kyle play. I've seen Iguodala play. seen Garrett Temple play. And those guys, those guys got a sweet swing, but I'm getting there. I feel like there's a strong correlation between being a good shooter and being a good golfer because in shooting and really any basketball skill work, there's an obsessive pursuit there's a maniacal pursuit to refine that skill mm-hmm. and golf probably requires that even more <laughs> for sure uh i wouldn't put iguodal as a great shooter i just want to be clear on that <laughs> what, are, what are these games for the for the fans listening what are these games like are they hyper competitive the golf games golf games uh matches whatever i haven't actually played with those guys like i've, I've seen them at the driving range and uh like I've seen him on the hole before us. I've been playing with a couple of our coaches, Kimba. He uh he kind of just picked up golf recently. I'm definitely the best golfer on our team by far. It's not not really super competitive because I because we kind of just started. But I would say if I'm like if I'm locked in, if I'm having a good day, I'll probably shoot anywhere from like 87 to like a 91, 92. Do you understand? Have you talked to people? to kind of understand how insane that is that you yeah. started playing basically two and a half months ago, three months ago, yeah, and you can already break 90? Everybody had the same reaction when I tell them, you know, I just started playing. They're like, yo, I've been playing for six, five years, and I'm still trying to break 100. It's like anything. You know, some days you, I feel like I've been playing all my life, and then I go out there one day, like, it's like the first time I ever picked up a golf club. So, But I, I enjoy it, though. I really, I really love playing golf. Do you think you'll play with MJ at some point? I don't know. I heard he played 18 holes in like two hours. Like he don't take no practice swings. He don't lose the ball. He, and I'm not, I'm not there yet. I got to take a practice swing or two. What is uh, something about the bubble that is surprising to you? Something that you didn't necessarily expect, but has been better than advertised. I mean, besides. Obviously, being away from your family, like I tell people, the bubble not—it's not bad. It might be the safest place in America at this point. 
I know everybody missed playing basketball. We're doing what we love. Yeah, they got golf, bowling, get your hair cut. And they got all these things to kind of accommodate you what you would have on the outside that you would normally do. The food, the food has gotten better. They got restaurants yeah. open. They got food deliveries. Like, I'm cool. Like, it's, it's not that bad. You know, I know a lot of people are skeptical coming in, you know, as I was too. You know, it's the first time this has ever happened, but the bubble, the bubble is all right. Like, it's cool. I've said this to a couple of people. I was very skeptical of how this all was going to work and what it was going to be like. If you took my family out of the equation, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. I wouldn't have a single complaint. In fact, the barbershop is legit. I've gotten <laughs> I've gotten two cuts. I've gotten two cuts from I'm gonna give a shout out to from Mo the Barber from Miami. And Mo has hooked it up, man. I it's legit. Were you were you originally planning to to grow your hair out to like leave that the whole time during the bubble? Or did you figure like at some point I'm gonna get a cut? So I was gonna cut it before the first game. And I remember I got a haircut like a day or two before the first game. And I, I was like, I, t- I called my mom, my grandma, I was like, yo, I'm going to cut my curls off because the real game's about to start. I got to get back to my old self. And my mom was like, no, you know, you and Deuce got the same hairstyle. Like, you should match him. Like, I love it. You've never had long hair before. You should keep it. She's like, at least like a couple games try it out. I go two for 18 in my first game and we lose. That just added more incentive, like, yeah, I got to cut this off. And then I had 34 the next game when we win. So I know people are like, oh, it was the hair, which I really was going to cut my hair before the first game. But, you know, after that, it kind of just speeded up the process. The universe spoke to you. Are you, one of those, are, you, are you one of those guys that will change shoes at halftime if you have a bad first half? No, nah, I'm not going to change my shoes first half because I've had plenty of games where – I had five points in the first half, and then I end up, you know, with 29. So, but I, if I have, like, a, a completely bad game, then it's like, all right, yeah, these shoes, like, they're going in the trash. But I, I keep my shoes on for the, for the whole game. Are you surprised at all at how good the basketball has been? Yes and no. You know, guys, the best basketball players in the world. Like, this is, you know, this is, this is what we do. I figured, you know, the, the start might be a little slow, but – one thing I have noticed is at least for most of the games I've seen how competitive they've been, you know, guys are, are, are really getting after it. And, you know, I think it allowed for a lot of teams to, to kind of get all their players, get, get healthy, give them time off to whatever nagging injuries that they had to get right. So I, I'm enjoying it. Like I know we haven't had sports for a long time. So just to be able to see games all throughout the day and watch different, different matchups, uh, has been fun. Jason, you've taken a, a big jump this year into, we'll call it superstardom or damn near superstardom. But at this point, you know, you are a bona fide star in this league. I could tell from the very first game in watching you this year that there was a concerted effort to attack the basket more, get to the foul line more. Your three point attempts are way up. Your free throw attempts are way up. Your usage is way up. How much of that was just natural growth and how much of that was intentional based on either 
conversations with someone with the Celtics and analytics or are you and Drew going back to the lab? Uh, it was a little bit of both. I knew after my rookie year, you know, obviously I had a lot of expectations within myself as, as we all do. You know, we all are our own toughest critics. And obviously, you know, after that playoff run my first year that there were so many expectations coming in the second year. And we all know how that went. You know, the, we didn't have the season that we wanted. Nobody played as well as they they felt like they should have. And, and it was just a down year. And, you know, individually and, and collectively. So I, coming into this year, you know, honestly, in my mind, I felt like in a way this was like my – whether it was right or wrong, in my mind, I felt like this was my last kind of opportunity to kind of show, like, I still can be a star. I felt like, you know, people that second year, there were a lot of doubts. And, you know, I kind of feel like people were like, okay, we can, they had a, a lot of chemistry problems or, you know, team problems. So we'll give them, we'll give them one more chance. And that was on my mind coming into this year that like, you know, I have to be so much better. You know, we, we have to be better as a team. You know, I got to make the all-star game, you know, for, for people to still kind of look at me as he still can be one of those guys. So, and I just had to look at, you know, what I was doing on and off on the court and how can I make the game easier for myself to kind of take that next step. What's remarkable about that statement that you just said is that you were 21 when the season started, you were starting your third year, and yet you felt pressure like this was going to be one of your last chances to prove to people how good you were. Do you think that's a byproduct of the social media world and the the news media and how basketball is covered now? Or is that more how you're wired and how you sort of hold yourself to a, a standard for greatness? I think it's both because obviously after my first year, you know, I felt like, you know, I, your first year, you, you want to prove to people that you belong here. You want to earn the respect of your peers, your teammates and other guys in the league. And I felt like I had done that. And now it was time, I felt like, to take that next step. And I'm always setting goals. And, and the biggest goal was I wanted to make the All-Star team my second year. My second year. And it, it didn't happen. I didn't play well enough. You know, our team, we didn't accomplish enough. We didn't win enough. And for me, to, I feel like, obviously, social media does play a part. You know, just hearing all the outside noise. And that added pre pressure. But just, I guess, with, within myself, um, just looking at all the guys that, you know, came before me and all that they accomplished at a young age, I felt like if I didn't make the All-Star team this year, I would have felt like not a failure, but just like a disappointment. But then you think, put things in perspective, like I was only 21 when I started this year. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but that's honestly how I felt coming into the season that I had, like it was just do or die. I had to make that team. I always say in the NBA, two plus two does not equal four. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it equals five. Sometimes it equals seven. You really never know. And when you put a team together and you put individual pieces on the court, you never know how it's actually going to work. And that's sort of what makes basketball so beautiful. So you guys brought in Kemba this year. I think you, Jalen, and Kemba are all averaging over 20 a game. What is it about his play style that gives you and Jalen the, the freedom to get off on such a consistent basis? 
Um, I think even Kimba tell you him coming into this season, you know, I think he's been in the league nine, eight or nine or ten years. And his main focus was he he's been all NBA, he's been all star, he's got a max contract. He's never really been on a winning team in a winning situation. So his message to us was he just wants to contribute to winning. He just wants to win. And, you know, there's been games where he's had single digit points and we've won and he's had the biggest smile on his face. And, you know, he's just been so happy to to be in a winning market, play on TV, on national television and and playing big games and big moments and and be a part of something that 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 can be special. You know, and just having that that type of guy as, as a leader on your team, you know, I think really enables everybody else to be them within our system, within what we're trying to do as a team. But just, you know, he wants everybody to, to do them, you know, because he, he really just wants to win. Jason, talk about the, your first playoff run for a second. We were looking at some stats earlier today. You're the only player ever to notch 400 points, 100 rebounds, 50 assists in the playoffs before turning 21. From like a focus standpoint, when you were going into that first playoff run, did you do anything different? Or was it just pretty much the same and it kind of just turned on? <laughs> no, I didn't. Knowing what I, what I know now, like my rookie, I, didn't, I really didn't even get like treatment my rookie yard. If I, if I had a bad game, I didn't get in the ice tub because I felt like I didn't deserve to get ice. Like I would I, – I don't know like what I was thinking, but I, all I remember is like <laughs> I know once the playoffs started and JJ can attest to this, like the first meeting or practice we had when we knew who we were playing in the playoffs, we got a packet of, like, it was a one-page spread on personnel on each player. And in the regular season, it's like, you know, before the game, you watch two or three clips on each player, you know, what they've been doing the last four or five games. But I remember they handed everybody a little, like, a packet on – we played Milwaukee first, and it was a one-page on each, on each player's one-page paper on, you know, their tendencies, what they like to do, you know, what to take away. And I was like, oh, it's getting real now. Like, I, I got to study. I got to really, really watch film. Because in the playoffs, everybody knows all the plays. You know, you play the same team five, six, seven times. So there's no secrets. Like, we all know what's coming. We all know what plays are drawn up. It's all about taking away tendencies and, and who wants it more. I can attest to that because I played for Stan Van Gundy for five years <laughs> and our packet was about 300 fucking pages. <laughs> uh, we did not have one page for personnel on each guy. We had multiple pages. We had every every play that they had run that year, and we were expected to know the play calls that they ran the most. And then first day, this is I love this part. First day, you meet as a team, you get your packets, you go over the strategy. This is how we're going to start the series. And then there's these little breakout groups. And so... Mm-hmm. One group might go with the bigs, one might be the wings, one might be the point guards, and then you sit there and you watch a personnel tape for 30 to 45 minutes. During the regular season, you you might watch three minutes in sh- you know before shoot-around in the morning yep. and then another three minutes of personnel, and that's on like five guys. So you might watch one or two clips on each player. Just, hey, this, I'm going to hit you with this tendency. This is what mm-hmm. we're trying to do tonight, game plan. You know, Tonight we played uh, De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox, we don't want him getting to his left. We want him getting to his right. And that's basically it. During the playoffs, it's ratcheted up another notch. I wanted to also add, to me, what makes you 
such a valuable player in the playoffs is exactly what you just said in that everybody knows what's coming. There's no secret. You've got the scout on every play. Sometimes you just need a guy that can go get a bucket. Mm-hmm. And having played against you in the playoffs, I can attest to that personally. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, though. So I started it when we played you in the Eastern Conference semifinals, my first year in Philly, your rookie year. Mm -hmm. Game one, I started on you. And we switched one through four that year. And so you had 28 that game. Yeah. And I fouled you a couple times. And you hit a couple shots on me. And I'm like, log on social media, and I'm like, I'm getting killed for Tatum having 28 tonight. So I went back and watched the tape, and I'm like, this dude had nine on me. He had nine on me. Come on. Everything else was a switch or right. blown coverage. The game I remember the most, though, from that playoff run, just because it was so personal, was game three. Mm-hmm. You guys ran your stack play in the second half, and it did not matter who we put on you. It's just a little inverted pin down. Yep. You peel out to the left wing. You can go ISO if you go quick. You may go slow and you wait on the big for a little pick and roll. And you guys, I mean, Brad milked that play to death. You guys ran that play so many times yeah, and we, we couldn't stop you. That playoff series was crazy because game three was the only game we won on the road that entire playoff run. We had every other game we won at home. Thank God we had home court advantage. And we we beat you guys 4-1. But besides maybe game one, Game one, yeah. Every other game really could have went like the other way because game two, you guys were up twenty four. We were up twenty four, and we came. but we had the lead. We had the lead in the fourth quarter of of every game except game one. Yeah, we couldn't close you guys out at all. You guys was up twenty something in the, in the second quarter. I remember we came all the way back, and then we we got ourselves in the game. Game three, Bellinelli hits the shot, but his toe was on the line. I remember they had confetti coming down. And you guys turned the ball over twice, I think, on the eight. I had one of them. I had one of them, yeah. And game four, you guys, y'all smacked us. And then game five, I remember you had a wide-open three in the fourth quarter. I remember sitting there like, damn, if he make this, we're going back to Philly. We're probably not going to win game six, and we're going to have to play them in game seven. But it was just like we, we won 4-1, but it was way closer than, like, than 4-1. Low key, that shot might be one of the biggest what ifs of my career, because I, I remember it well. Mm-hmm. TJ broke down the defense and got was essentially underneath the basket, and somehow y'all left me, and he just threw a diagonal pass to me on the left slot in front of your was, bench. I think right? in front of our bench, I yeah. think it was ninety two eighty eight with like a minute ten to go. Yeah. So if I hit that shot, we in trouble. Our chances of winning is ninety some percent. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna probably win that game. We're gonna go back. Our fans are gonna be rabid, mm-hmm. and that series is probably going seven games for sure. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Boston the your crowd in that series. I went to games one and two in Boston. Your crowd in that series was on another level as well. I remember in game two when Philly blew the big lead. I mean. The crowd, when they started realizing and Terry started hitting a couple of those shots and getting you guys back into it, when they started to realize what was happening, do you attribute any of that stuff to just being in, in Boston with the crowd? For sure. For sure. They definitely helped us out and during that playoff series because 
every series we were in that we were expected to lose because we didn't have the best player on the floor against Milwaukee. We didn't have the best player against Philly. We didn't have the best player against Cleveland. Like we were the two seed, but nobody picked us to win any series we were a part of. And Philly just beat Miami with four one, four zero. Four one. We had we had won twenty of twenty one games going into your because we had finished the season on a sixteen game winning streak. So we were twenty of twenty one going into that series. Yeah, and we and we took Milwaukee to seven. Then we had one day off. Then we had to play Philly, who had been resting for a couple of days. So we for sure needed the crowd to get that one because we were supposed to lose every series every each round. If I remember correctly, and Jason, back me up if you guys knew of this. But I remember when it was announced that Kyrie was going to be out and Gordon was already out, we were in a battle for third with Cleveland. And both teams wanted that three seed. Mm -hmm. And then Milwaukee was like almost playing for the seven seed to try to get. Do you remember this? They were like playing to get the seven seed. They were losing games. Not as I'm not saying they were losing on purpose. But they were totally fine with not getting six. They wanted y'all in the first round. Were y'all motivated by that? I, clearly, you. It, it sounds like you knew this was happening. Yeah, we we knew, um, or we we the media was talking about it. We had a feeling that because I remember Washington was really trying to get the 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 seventh seed. It was kind of like yeah, we had the number two seed, but you know we didn't have our two best players, so everybody was trying to play us. Like they thought it was going to be sweet. You know, they got us in the first round. So not like Milwaukee wasn't trying to lose games, but they were they were perfectly fine with getting a seventh seed and like, all right, we got the 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 young Celtics first round. We're gonna get them out the way. And I remember when Kyrie, when we found out Kyrie wasn't playing, we were in Portland. I think that was the start of our last road trip in March. We played Portland, Utah. I forget who else, but I think we went three and one on that road trip. And after that road trip, I'm like, damn, we might be okay. Like, you know, we, we still had 15 or 16 games left to kind of find our identity of what we were going to be like going into the playoffs. So we still had enough time. And we heard all the noise that, you know, we were going to lose in Milwaukee. And if we made it out of that, we were definitely going to lose the Philly. So we were all young guys that had nothing to lose. Um, just trying to prove ourselves, and that's how we play every night. Like we just had nothing, nothing to lose, and, and everything in the game. Did you have any? Was there any anything extra for you because of the draft and what happened with Philly? Oh, oh, good question, Tommy. <laughs> uh, no, nah, I didn't. I, I don't have any animosity towards Philly for for not picking me. Um, I joke with Danny all the time because he says he was going to pick me number one regardless. I'm like, damn, Danny, like, that's a couple extra million dollars I could have in my pocket. <laughs> and just the title of I was the number one pick. But uh, no, I wasn't uh, – I didn't have any any hard feelings, you know, going into that series. When Philly and Boston made that trade, which I believe was uh, maybe four or five days before the draft, did you know that night that you were going to Boston? Uh, what's funny, I was actually – Phoenix had the fourth pick, so I was in Phoenix. I just I went to go meet with the coach and see the facility and see the players and all that. And I remember my agent called me, and I was like, I think I had a flight that night to go back home because this was now like a week before the draft. He was like, yo, tomorrow, you know, once you go back to St. Louis, 
need you to pack a bag because you're flying to Boston. I'm like, well, I'm going to Boston. He like, it's not out yet, but they're going to trade the first pick and they're going to give it to third and they want to see you work out again. I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to go to Boston because I want to go to Phoenix because it's, it's nice weather out here. I'll be able to play. I'm going to be able to average 20. I was like, Boston, they got, they just went to the Eastern Conference Finals. I'm not going to play. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to go to Boston. 15 minutes later, Coach K calls me. I'm like, what's up, Coach? How you doing? He's like, hey, I just spoke to Boston, and I think Brad is a great young coach, and I think it would be a great fit for you. You know, they're going to trade the pick, and they want to see you work out again. I think you should go. I'm not going to tell Coach K no. So I'm like, I'm like all right, I'll go. I didn't want to, not because I didn't like Boston. I just didn't think I was going to play or I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do. And I remember I went to Boston four days before the draft, and uh, I, had, I had a workout. And I remember I had a sinus infection, so I couldn't fly. I had to take the train from Boston to the draft. And I had a good feeling, but they didn't tell me or my agent that they were going to pick me. So even sitting at the draft table, I was – I had no idea where I was. I knew I wasn't going one or two because everybody said Markel and Lonzo we're going first and second. So I had no idea. I figured it would be Boston or Phoenix. I figured I was going three or four. Wow. I think the mindset you had to want to go to Phoenix, I don't necessarily think that's a bad mindset to have because you understood at the time what on paper at least looked like a better fit. So many young mm -hmm. guys just want to get drafted as high as possible and they don't really, even between three and four, you're talking about over the life of a contract, a few million dollars. Yep. So to have that mindset of, I just want to get to a place where it's going to be a great fit. I'm going to get an opportunity to play right away. And you ended up, <laughs> you ended up obviously hitting a home run on that. For sure. What similarities do you see between Brad and Coach K? Uh, they're so different. Obviously, you know, one is so much the gap and the age difference. Um, Coach K is much more animated. You know, he's going to yell, he's going to cuss you out, he's going to slap the floor. You really can't do that, you know, as an NBA coach. Brad is much more reserved. I look at Coach K more as like a leader. Just from my experience, his ability to, to lead us and to maximize our potential and maximize how hard we played. You know, Coach K could get us to, to run through a wall. And, you know, I think playing for Brad is, is more X's and O's. You know, just being an NBA coach, you – not going to sit there and wave the towel around and, and scream and cuss at you while you're playing. That's just, that's just not how it is. So I think that's the biggest difference between the two. Obviously, Coach K is one of the greatest, most well-respected coaches of all time. And Brad is obviously a great, one of the better coaches in the NBA today. So very fortunate to, to be able to play for, for those two guys. It's amazing the amount of love that Brad gets and – he keeps on coming up on the podcast, unfortunately, and, <laughs> and he's a rival coach, and I hate it. Uh, I'm going to change the subject, actually. <laughs> uh, earlier this season, when we played you guys in New Orleans, it was a Sunday afternoon, nationally televised game, and I woke up from my nap, and there was news of Kobe Bryant, and basically was confirmed to me on my drive over to the arena. So I show up to the arena and I'm in tears and I, I, I knew Kobe. I didn't, I didn't know him necessarily on a personal level, but I knew him 
it was an emotional day. It was one of the hardest games I've ever had to play because of that. You were hurt that day. You didn't play, but take me through your emotions that day because Kobe was a hero to you. Yeah, I remember um, we were on a road trip. We went to Miami, New Orleans, Orlando. So I was out with a groin, so I didn't play any of those games. I remember I went to grab something to eat with my dad. My dad had came to New Orleans because we got some family down there. He came to New Orleans, and we were out eating. It was in the afternoon, so I wasn't in my room getting ready for the game. We were out eating, and I rem- my phone was just zzz, zzz, It kept buzzing. So I looked at it. Somebody texted me. said, Kobe died. I said, bro, I'm like, Kobe died. More text messages coming through my phone. People calling me. They're like, Kobe passed. I remember I, like, I got sick to my stomach. I'm wait. I'm I'm waiting for it to be like a joke or like, you know, this is not true. At least for a few hours, I could not believe it. I just had the weirdest feeling in my stomach. People kept calling me. I didn't want to talk to anybody, especially once I found out that it was true. I went back to my room. I saw that it was confirmed. You know, watching the news, and like I cried. Then I stopped. I'm like, no, Kobe. In my mind, he's my hero. I'm like, Kobe can't die. Like. He played through every injury. He tore the killers. He shot two free throws. Like he can get hurt. Like nothing. Like I to me, he was like invincible. So it was just like I just had the weirdest feeling. I remember going to the game, and I remember we came out there and we did the eight second violation and let the shot clock run out. And I remember I sat back and I didn't even watch the game. I was just I sat back in the locker room crying stop crying obviously i'd like even if i would have been able to play i don't know how you guys even played the game that day because i didn't even watch the game sitting back in the locker room i was it was just like the weirdest feeling i was so upset i i just i didn't want to believe it and you know that was that was an extremely tough day a day i'd never forget and you know it was just it was just heart heartbreaking kobe did seem Invincible. Um, it's amazing the effect that he had on people, the inspiration, the motivation for your generation, even because of your guy's age and when he was in his prime. Like, it's remarkable to think of the amount of great players that he inspired in your age group. When you got to work with him, was that the summer before your second year? Yeah, that was uh, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Take us through that process, what that was like. You seem giddy about it and everything that I've read. Yeah, so it, it started back when we were in the playoffs. Kobe was doing a detailed documentary thing on, on ESPN. And um, we're playing Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals. We just played game one. So we got practice the next day, getting ready for game two come back, sit down in my locker, look at my phone. And he would tweet it. He would tweet the link out. And I saw Kobe tweeting me. I'm like, oh, shit. I literally sat there and watched it like 20 times in a row. He did a detail on me in game one. And then he went through my agent. He texted me. Texted me, said, young fella, happy for your success. Stay focused. Keep going. If you're in L.A. this summer, you want to work out, just let me know. I was like, 
I can't believe it. So then I tell him, like, all right, you know, I appreciate everything we'll do. Fast forward, I go out to L.A. to That's why I work out with Drew. As soon as the plane landed, I text Kobe. This was probably maybe a month later, six weeks. I'm like, what's up, Kobe? You know, I'm out here in L.A. I'll be out here for a few weeks. You know, hopefully we can still get in the gym together. Say this was Monday at like 12 in the afternoon. He didn't text me back to like Saturday afternoon. So if he's texting me back Saturday at like 4, I text him back at 4.01. So then we met like twice at his office. We met like twice, got to talk to him. He showed me around his office and, you know, he was obviously working on books and stuff like that. So we worked out about a week after that. And it was just a surreal moment because just looking at him, you know, remembering myself when I was a toddler, you know, uh, just a young kid watching him on TV and be like, that's who I want to be like. Like, this is why I love basketball because he inspired me. Fast forward, now I'm 20 and I'm having a one-on-one interaction with him working out on, like, I'm here working out with you because you inspired me without even knowing easily. I mean, besides my son being born, that's like the best day of my life just to be in a gym with him and, and work out with him and, and, and learn some tips was just like, I'll never forget that day, how I felt going into the workout, how I felt afterwards. I just felt like that was just like the coolest thing ever for me. And like, I'll never forget that. When I got to play USA basketball for a couple summers very early on in my career, Kobe asked to shoot with me after practice one day like he asked me <laughs> to shoot with him <laughs> i'm like yeah for sure man right. let's do it and he's encouraging me he's talking to me we're, we're going through some shooting drills just me and him it was like you said it was surreal and then i realized like 10 15 minutes into it i'm like this guy's actually like watching how I shoot the ball. And then he's asking me questions. He's actually trying to learn something right. from me. Like Kobe never passed down an opportunity to get better. That I still remember that so vividly. Like halfway into it just being like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought I was watching him, but it's actually the other way around. Watching you, right? <laughs> it's incredible. All right, before we get to the speed round, I have one, one other just quick question for you. So one of the things that I find really interesting about your your generation of players is Tommy, how would you describe it? Just chill. Super Just chill. super humble. Back. It's a yes, quiet the, confidence. The best young players in the league are just chill. There's like no you no I, ego. I've got no two of anything. them on my team, Zion, BI, Luca, D book. And you guys all grew up in this social media age where a lot of you were household names in the basketball world by age 15 or 16. What do you think it is about your generation that reflects that humility and quiet confidence and, and chillness? I think for the guy that you just named, I know all those guys pretty well. I think some of it's just like, you know, how you were raised your demeanor. Because B.I. is one of the most, like, quiet guys I've ever met in my life. Like, I thought I was a quiet guy. Like, B.I. is super quiet. But I think just being, like, good guys and 
obviously have some some sort of success early, but just knowing that, you know, all those guys, all of us, we how great, you know, we 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 want to be and just the respect factor of, you know, we know we have so much further to go. I think like for me, it was weird because I felt like on the inside, like I, I'm, I'm very confident. I feel like, you know, I can compete with anybody. But there was also a part of me like, I can't say I'm one of the best because I didn't make the all-star team. And there's like a stat, I guess I was averaging like 29 or 30 after I was named an all-star. And it was ironically enough, like once I found out I made it, it kind of was like, damn, like I'm going to be like in the same room as, as the guys I look up to. I remember going in the locker room for our game. I was the first person there, I guess I didn't get the memo. I was early. I was like an hour early before everybody else. And I remember just looking around. I was right next to LeBron and Anthony Davis and Dame and Book and Chris Paul and all these guys. And it's like, I'm not at that level yet, but it's like I I belong. And that was just like a crazy, crazy feeling for me, just just looking to the left and the right and like all these guys that, you know, I, I – I respect and I, I looked up to growing up. Now it's like I can say like I'm in the same like vicinity as these guys. Obviously, you know, they've been doing it for so long and, you know, have, you know, been that great for a such consistent amount of time. But I think it's like I'm I'm getting there. And I think other guys, the young guys feel the same way. And, you know, just still that that respect factor of the guys that came before me you know, how much I appreciate, you know, them paving the way, you know, for, for guys like myself, but still, you know, I'm still competing against you as well. So in a way you have a long way to go, but like you, you getting there. Yesterday at practice, this is the second time that this has happened, but yesterday at practice, I forgot my shoes. I've been in the league 14 years. And for 14 years, when you go to shoot around or practice, the equipment manager hands me my shoes. And so I forgot my shoes yesterday. So Cherokee Parks, who's our team liaison, runs back to the hotel to grab my shoes. Well, B.I.'s an Adidas guy like me. We wear the same size. So I went over to him. I was like, B.I., you got an extra pair of shoes. And he had some pro models. So I was like, great. And I realized afterwards I had forgotten what his voice sounded like because he hadn't spoken <laughs> in so long. <laughs> no, yeah, B.I. Is- if, you think, if you think I'm kidding, I'm not kidding. He is the quietest guy I've ever been around. It's amazing. No, nah, yeah, B.I. might be the quietest basketball player I've, I've ever been around. We talked about this with Zion when he was on a little bit ago. But to J.J.'s point, what's really interesting, you know, basketball aside, is you guys also, no one gets in trouble. No one is too loud on social media. There's You're just kind of controlled. And, you know, like one thing that like we're curious about is like, you have these 15, 16-year-old kids who are in high school and have 5 million followers on Instagram. We were talking about this with Dame last week, and Dame was was kind of like, this is a, it's a problem for him. He thinks it's a thing which is making sort of things worse for younger players. But the counter to that is all of these younger players who have made it have somehow seemed to avoid the trap falls that comes with like celebrity, you know? Yeah. Social media came out. I got an Instagram when I was... I think a freshman. Eight, I was either eighth grade or a freshman in high school. So it was, it was new to all of us. And 
I think like now there are guys that are their kids are in middle school that have social media and did that do have hundreds of thousands and millions of followers. And you can kind of tell who's like kind of caught up in the hype and caught up in themselves. And sometimes I, I come across somebody who's 13 and posts like a hoop mixtape video of them, you know, at, at 13 and posts rankings. And it's like, that's not like what's really important at, at 13. Like you, you have so far to go. But then it's like, I can understand maybe being 13 and somebody made a highlight tape of you. You're excited about it. So I think, I think it's on the parents to kind of monitor that. I know that if I, like when my son gets older, I'm going to try to hold off as long as possible before he could get social media. Cause it, it definitely can help you. There are a lot of positives about social media, but then, you know, with being, you know, looked on as, as famous or of some stature that it does give people some access to you. And, you know, we all know about people that hide behind Twitter handles and, and things like that and say some disrespectful things on social media uh, that, you know, young kids just shouldn't have to deal with. So, I mean, there's a lot of up and ups and downs to social media. I think it's just on the parents, it's their job to kind of monitor, the, you know, the, the use of that, you know, when kids are that young. Well said. And do me a favor. Will you please put a uh, golf club in Deuce's hands at a very young age <laughs> so that he's I not will. like us and picking up golf when we're in the NBA and, right. <laughs> and, and especially me struggling through hacking up a course. Uh, all right, let's get to the speed round. We just got a few questions, super short answers. We've talked about this on the podcast before. If you go to people's basketball reference page, um, they'll list nicknames. None of the nicknames ever make sense. None of the nicknames are actually in articles or on television about these players. And your nickname is Taco J. So where does that come from? <laughs> Taco J. Uh, tacos are my favorite food. My mom makes tacos four to five times a week. Ever since I can remember. We'll, I'll be on a road trip and I won't get back to the house at two in the morning. And... I'd be like, Ma, can you make me some tacos? So I eat tacos at like 2, 3 in the morning, and I'll post it on my Snapchat. And, you know, I just kind of just start putting Taco J. That's where that came from. Okay. So no no Taco Tuesdays in your house. It's tacos every day, basically. It, it, it's sporadic, just whenever. Take any family member out of it. Do you have a favorite taco place in the country? No, I don't eat tacos anywhere but Beside, from my mom. Besides your mom. Uh-uh. That's amazing. I'm real picky. That's amazing. What's the first website you go to in the morning or first app, like first thing you do when you wake up? The first app? So not like text message or anything, right? Yeah, no calls or texts, but just like something on the internet. Uh, if I had to pick, I would go to Twitter first. Twitter's like the news in a way. Yeah. What was a more memorable moment for you? Dunking on LeBron in the Eastern Conference Finals or dropping Paul George with a step back three earlier this season? Oh, dunking on LeBron, <laughs> hands down. It was game seven. It was at home. One of the best players ever to play my rookie year. Just Paul Pierce was, was front row. You know, he stood up when it happened. It was, it, everything just clicked at the right time. That's like one of my more, I guess, memorable highlights. And I'm pretty sure they'll probably show that for as long as I'm playing basketball. 
you and Brad tomorrow play a game of of one on one to a hundred. What happens? Brad Man. Stevens or Brad Beal? Brad Beal. To a hundred? Damn. I'm aware. That's like my big brother, but Brad will tell you the last time we played one on one, it wasn't it wasn't too pretty for him. But uh that's just because I know all his moves and I'm taller than him, so I got the advantage one on one. Give us our right, last question. Give us your dream golf foursome. Ooh, me, Tiger Woods, Peyton Manning, and I guess you had to say Michael Jordan. Yeah, that'd be pretty sick. I'm not gonna lie. That's that's pretty solid. That's a solid. Kind of can't go wrong with that four. It's a solid foursome. I feel like you'd have to be willing to bet a lot of money if you were gonna ha- if you were gonna play in that foursome. Yeah, maybe maybe wait till I get like a, a next contract or something before I play with those guys. Got to wait on that max extension. All right, we're gonna draft. Uh, Tommy, please explain the premise of the draft. Yeah. So, Jason, we know you love comedies comics comedies everything like that we're going to draft five comic actors if you had to build out a movie so it can be comedians actors anything like that if you're casting a movie you have to pick your top five and the way the draft works is like you go first and whoever you pick we can't pick so you go first i go second jj's third he gets two he snakes it and then we go back okay i got bernie mac number one wow that's a great pick all right i'm up eddie Wow. All right, my I get two picks. I'm going to go with uh Jamie Foxx. I think he's the most talented person in Hollywood. Don't at me. And um Jason Sudeikis. <laughs> are we talking Wild just actors? Are we talking just actors or like comedians? Like So this is the question. I was thinking about this when we were talking about Are we it. also not allowed to include women? Are we discriminating no. against women in this? <laughs> you can you can do you can do whoever you want. But okay. think, I mean, how I'm thinking about it is there's certain stand-ups who might not be good in movies. So you have to be casting have to a movie. It. We're casting yeah, a movie. Yeah, you're casting a movie. So it's not just, it's not funny as people ever. It's like you're casting an actual movie. Comedy, Jason though. Sudeikis has been in horrible bosses. Yeah, I don't comedy. understand, Jason, I don't, I don't understand your reaction I love to my Jason, Jason Sudeikis. Sudeikis Jason Sudeikis is a friend of the show. Jason Sudeikis is not a first round pick or a second round pick. That's a horrible pick. You're wrong. He's the fourth pick. He's definitely a top four pick. No, when you pick Jamie Foxx and you say he's one of the most talented men in Hollywood, which I agree, and I was like, are we doing like a good movie or are we doing like a comedy movie? Because I would have picked Denzel if like we just doing... We're doing comedies. Comedy. Okay. Comedies. Comedies. So I'm going to stick, I'm gonna stick I, with my pick. I find Jamie Foxx to be funny. I find Jamie Foxx no, to be is, funny. No, he is. He is. All right, Tommy, All right, so you're Jason up. Sudeikis... Is, okay, I'm, I'm number I I'm don't number understand two. the hate for Jason Sudeikis. I mean, this... This guy, he was an SNL all-star... And he's been in multiple movies that are absolutely hilarious. All right. So I'm up. I got a second pick. I'm going uh, Bill Murray. Okay. So this is a question that I had because Bill Murray is one of the all-timers for me. Are we ignoring off-the-field behavior? Does the off-the-field behavior factor into <laughs> like this what? at all? <laughs> like what? Like him being very strange? Okay. I would say this. If Eddie Murphy and, and Bill Murray were in a movie together, would you not be interested in seeing how that would turn out? It was just a question, Tommy. You don't have to get <laughs> okay. defensive. All right. All right, Jason. You got Nobody two. Google Bill Murray scandal is all I'm saying. All right, go ahead. <laughs> Martin Lawrence. Oh, great call. Chris Tucker. Another good call. 
Yeah, that's you. You got a solid movie coming together right now. Martin. I thought I thought I was gonna I thought I was gonna get Martin late. I did too. He was on my board. All right, Tommy, you're up. Third. I'm going Will Ferrell. I'm taking him off the board. I like it. I like it. Um, this guy is not necessarily an actor, but he has been in some television shows as an actor and also has his own show. Um, I'm going to go with Asin Minhaj, friend of the pod. Got to have him on. Yep, he, he's in the movie, Tommy. He's in the movie. I don't know who that it, is. He hosts the Patriot Act on Netflix. He was on the Daily Show. You would know. We'll send you, you some he stuff. Yeah. He's he's amazing. He's a great friend of ours. You'll love his stand up. But he's not in movies. He was right. in television shows. Let me. I get to cast who I want to cast. Okay. All right. Next pick. Uh, I'm going. Um, I'm torn on this one, but I'm going to go Bateman. I'm going to go Jason Bateman. A lot of Jasons in my cast. Was, was Jason Bateman in Horrible Bosses also? As well. Yes. Yes. So you're basically your best comedy movie ever <laughs> is Horrible Bosses plus Hassan. I didn't say that. No. Um, but I did enjoy that movie a lot. Not the second okay. one, but I the first one. Yes. Jason, I don't know if you've realized JJ's not very good at drafting. We draft <laughs> yeah. on every show and a, a, a version of this happens every time. Yeah, I like my chances on this one. <laughs> yeah. All right, All right Tommy, I'm four. Yep. I'm going Chappelle. Mm. Even though he hasn't been in that many movies, when he's been in them, like remember he was in Blue Streak, he was in Half Baked. He's had his he always he was in Con Air, he always kills it. He just doesn't really need to do them that much. But with this script, I think he's going to make it work. Okay. All right. Jason, you got two left. Last two picks. Uh, so I got Bernie Mac, Martin Lawrence. Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. I need some diversity. I'm going to get uh, – what's my man from Entourage? Turtle? Jerry Ferrara. Jerry Ferrara. And – Give me Monique. Mm. Oof, that's a good pick. Late pick. Is Eddie Griffin from St. Louis? Kansas City. I was going to pick him. Kansas City. He's my favorite comedian. Yeah. But I feel like I needed some diversity. Mm. I like it. That's solid. All right, I got one more. Yep. I think I'm going Chris Farley. I like the pick. I like the pick. Um, All guys, which isn't great, but yeah. <laughs> I like my roster. Yeah. See, when I made, I'm going to be honest with y'all. When I made my board, uh, I was under the impression that we were just choosing comedic actors and not comedic actors and actresses. So I apologize to the listeners. I, I just have men on my board. Um, finish it off. I'm going to finish off. This is going to be maybe a surprise pick to you, Tommy. But if you can tell by my cast list, it's going to be a very sarcastic movie. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna draft Robert Downey Jr. Mm. He's a funny guy. You can't tell me he's not funny in all the Avengers and Iron Man movies. What comedies was he in? Tropic Thunder. All uh, of the Marvel the... movies. Tropic Thunder. <laughs> yes. He was in um the one where he couldn't fly and he was driving cross country to go see his baby being born with uh, the guy from Hangover. Uh, oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. I saw that. Forget forget what it's called. Due date. Due date, yeah. Due date. Very Wait a second. You, JJ, you picked Jamie Foxx too, right? Yeah. Jamie Foxx is also in Horrible Bosses. 
I'm, so I'm well three aware. Of, <laughs> three of JJ's five picks are in the same movie. Right, movie? Listen, I have this a, is his best comedy movie a, of all time. I have time. a certain style of comedy I like, and it's sarcasm. Okay, it's dry okay. sarcasm. All right. All right. Let, I like. I think Jason's list movie. is solid. Jason's list is solid. I think. I think it's between the two of us. We're going to duke it out. All right. Uh, Jason, thank you for all the time. You've been an awesome guest. Uh, shout out to the Brotherhood. Shout out to Duke. Good luck the rest of the time in the bubble, my man. Hope you guys make a run. All right. Appreciate y'all having me. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Thank you, Jason, for the time and the conversation. To the listener, as always, thank you for listening. Go subscribe. Go give us five stars. Just as a reminder, these videos, these interviews will be up on YouTube, full interviews and breakouts. So go subscribe to the JJ Reddick YouTube channel, and we will talk to you guys on Monday with D-Wave. Looking forward to it.